Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2016 AWP conference in Los Angeles. The recording features Joel Arquios, Benjamin DeLeon, Grant Faulkner, and Gerald Richards. You will now hear Gerald Richards provide introductions. Thank you for coming out at 9 o'clock in the morning. So, just so to make sure you're in the right room, <laughs> this is Forming Resilient Partnerships, How Literary Nonprofits, Schools, and Individuals Can Collaborate Effectively. I'm Gerald Richards. I'm the CEO for 826 National, um, and 826 National is a network of creative writing and after-school tutoring centers um, located in seven cities here in the U.S., and we work with six to 18-year-olds on their creative writing and getting them excited about writing and the growing a love of writing. And I have the pleasure of moderating this panel with these three gentlemen. So why don't you introduce yourselves? No, thanks, Gerald. I like to introduce myself in my role as Executive Director of National Novel Writing Month. The first call I made to another nonprofit ED was to Gerald at 826. And that's because it was like the one nonprofit I wanted to work with because 826, I think, of all the nonprofits in the world, they share our mission and our spirit, you know, almost identically. And I like it to think about this like walking into an 826. Like you're immediately struck by the wonder and the awe and the magic and the whimsicality of it, of it all. And it's an invitation to be a creator and a writer. And that's what we do at NaNoWriMo. NaNoWriMo is the acronym for National Novel Writing Month. And to put it simply, we just believe that everyone has a story to tell and that everyone's story matters. Except in the world, so often that story doesn't get told, right? Sometimes people think, I'm going to write that novel someday. And someday rarely happens for most people. That, those perfect conditions of writing just rarely appear. And also, I think it's about giving yourself permission. A lot of people see other people as writers, you know, whether that's people in MFA programs or people who live in Brooklyn or white men or older people. And so we like to think that everyone's a writer and that you're a writer. You become a writer in the act of writing. And so we make that happen through this simple challenge to write 50,000 words in a month. It, it, you know. <laughs> simple challenge. That's the simple part. That's the simple part of saying it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, we believe that, you know, a deadline and a goal are creative midwives. You have to do that to make things happen. So part of becoming a writer is like learning to deal with time management, you know, to develop the grit and the resilience to show up every day and do it. And beyond that, we break down the mythology of a solitary writer. So we really believe that writing happens best in a community of other people. So we, we form that community both online. We have very active, vibrant forums. There are a million forum posts in the NaNoWriMo forums during the month of November. We also have a network of super volunteers called Municipal Liaisons, and they're located, there are about 1,000 of them located literally around the world, and they, they host live writing gatherings throughout the month of November. Many of them do it year-round as well. And then we work with about 1,000 libraries across the country, and they also host live writing events um, in libraries. Libraries are increasingly becoming spaces of making and creating, not just archives of books. And then finally, we have this uh, great program, the Young Writers Program. And about 350,000 people sign up for NaNoWriMo every year, and then 100,000 people sign up on our Young Writers Program site, which is for kids and teens. And so the, the kid program works a little bit differently. They don't have to write 50,000 words. They can set their own word count goal. So like my daughter, who's a fourth grader, wrote 10,000 words last year. But then that program also includes we ship free classroom materials and Common Core Line curricula and a variety of other things to about 2,000 classrooms across the nation. This year we're going to shoot for 3,000. 
And it's all free. We operate just on providing access for all. And I think I went too long. Uh, hello, I'm uh, Joel Arkeos. I run 826 Los Angeles. And we actually, if you haven't had a chance yet, uh, you can come visit us. We have an Echo Park location, which is really close to here, which is fronted by the very famous Time Travel Mart. Uh, we're having a special on Willie Mammoth Meat this week. Our robot emotions are always fun. Um, but uh, we're part of the family of, of 826s across the nation. There's seven of us, seven chapters. In L.A., uh, we have actually two locations. We have an Echo Park location. We also have one in Mar Vista. And just this last year, we got a classroom inside of a school in uh, Manual Arts, which is not too far from here, you know, South L.A. With 826, you know, our goal is to support students ages 6 to 18 with their creative and expository writing skills. And we make it possible by recruiting volunteers from all walks of life, not just writers, but we do have a lot of writers, which is amazing and wonderful. But we bring folks to give students one-on-one -on -one undivided attention on their work. I was a former classroom teacher many years ago, um, and I benefited from HU6 in San Francisco when it first opened up. And um, you know, and Ben, who's uh, telling you more about teaching now, but I had classrooms where I had 40 students at times, and um, HU6 had just started, and they said, well, look, we can bring folks from the community into your classroom to work with your students on that essay that you're writing about immigration or whatever we were working on at the time, and we can you know, provide you some support to the students. And I was like, that's fantastic, because I can't put my desk outside of my classroom anymore while my class goes wild to give my students some undivided attention. Um, and so it was amazing. They brought up to 20 volunteers. We'd have to go down to the cafeteria and break up into tables, because each of my students would, would have at least one tutor who would look over their paper, talk to them, give them the feedback. And I just saw how amazing it was to, to expose our students who are inner city, you know, kids who lived in parts of, if you know, San Francisco, you know, alongside of folks who maybe were coming in to volunteer but never really had an occasion to connect with each other. But in a classroom, here we are, we're bringing in folks to, to work together and, and to get to know each other. And there's some you know, at the beginning, it's, it's hard. You know, a lot of the students don't necessarily always trust or know who these folks are, but you build these bonds, and over time, real trust happens, and I think that students begin to really find these sort of new mentors. And so we do this in L.A. for a lot of students. We have the tutoring program, which is our after-school program, where students come in. We work on homework first. And once that's done, we do some reading and writing. We publish books by the students in our after-school tutoring program. We do a field trip program during the day where entire classrooms will come into either one of our centers and will write a book with us in less than two hours. We have a fun one called Storytelling and Bookmaking where we have a fictional editor who lives upstairs. His name is Mr. Barnacle, and he's uh, incredibly cranky, and he will uh, you know, fire everyone if they don't produce a unique story by the end of the day. And somehow we, the kids pull it off and every kid lives with a published book they have their own bio in the back and their photo and author photo on the back before they leave and they go home with a final produced story then we're also going into schools throughout Los Angeles where we're working with what the teachers need and we're helping um, also to produce books by students we'll talk a little bit more about that later and then we have workshops uh, evenings and weekends on a variety of topics we do a journalism workshop regularly where we have LA Times writers and other journalists who come in and help students write stories that, that they're interested in they interviewed famous folks who come through, and, and it's really a fun time for them. We also do workshops on Saturdays where we do a reading program on Saturday. We're doing it right at 10 o'clock, it starts, where students who we've noticed or who have 
tested as sort of lower in the reading scale who are having challenges in reading, they'll come in and they'll just work with a volunteer to read and they'll talk about their, what they're reading and they'll write stories about what they're reading and slowly they begin to really become more confident and they, uh, you start to see them really change in, in lots of ways. And so we're doing a lot of different things like that. Um, and it's all made possible by amazing volunteers. And so part of the work is recruiting volunteers, training, retaining volunteers to help them, keep them engaged, to help us support the students across the, the city. Um, and we're serving up to 9,000 kids a year here in Los Angeles with this program. It's all free, and we target students who uh, couldn't afford these services otherwise. Uh, we make it a goal to make sure we're serving the highest need schools and the highest need students um, who come to our centers. And we've been uh, really, really happy and, and lucky to see so many great things coming from those kids. But I'll stop there. <laughs> Good morning. Thank you guys uh, for having me. Um, it's fantastic to be here because I, I, I'm listening to, uh, to the bios of my partners up here. And, and I think my classroom was a perfect, uh, I guess, laboratory for that. My name is Benjamin DeLeon. I teach uh, U.S. History, AP U.S., and regular U.S. History. Uh, one town over in uh, Boyle Heights, not too far away from here. Uh, just across the bridge from Little Tokyo, and you're there in, in about 10 minutes away from here. Last year, I had 826LA partner up with my classroom. And we had about close to 60 students uh, participate in this amazing writing project, which eventually... Uh, led to a book called We Are Life When We Speak for Justice. Uh, it was a collection of short stories, uh, historical narrative, personal essays, a couple poems, uh, interviews. It was, it was an anthology of sorts. I think probably, that's probably the best way to put it. And it was written, uh, edited, designed for the most part by just you know these 16, 17-year-olds. And it was an amazing labor of love. That, that was truly special to witness. It, it's funny, but just, just to piggyback on what you said earlier, you, you brought up this idea of, uh, forgive me if I'm chopping up your words, but you use the word, the, the mythology of writing. Right? You have to, you know, how do you break that? And, and I think it, it was a great experience because, you know, just working with close to 60 kids who don't consider themselves writers. I mean, half of the time, if, I mean, unless you have a really cool, like, 11th grader, and it wasn't me, but I mean, like, they're just really into writing. I think at this stage in their lives, a lot of high school kids, uh, they see writing as something like, oh, God, another writing project. And I think it was really special to see them just really evolve and see themselves as writers. And I think a lot of that was the magic of A26 and, and the support of A26. So, so I, I teach in LUSD. I've been a teacher for about 10 years. That was my role in this. And, and I guess we'll, we'll talk more about that as, as it goes on. But there is a new project coming out soon. We were just talking about it, and uh, I guess we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Great. Thank you. And thank you for the new people who walked in. So I'm just going to jump right in. So, Ben, you did a good, great segue. If you can talk about, Joel, you and Ben can talk about the Young Authors Book Project, which is one of 826's signature programs. And as I discussed, we work with a group of students in the classroom to create a published anthology, a beautiful book that the students can walk away with. And so talk a bit about the book you did, this book you did at Mendes. So we, we've been doing these Young Authors Book Projects for years. I actually, when I was a teacher, I got to do one of these, and it was an incredible experience. And like you were saying, it, some students are really into it. Sometimes it takes a little more for, to engage other students, who sometimes really it's about a fear. It's a fear of, like, is my story going to be good enough? Is it really something that people want to hear? And sometimes there's some 
very intense experiences that, that young people sometimes don't know if it's okay to talk about. So there's a lot of that that happens, but we've been doing these young authors, we have 13 books now, we're working on one right now that we're finishing up at Animo Venice, and we have Dolores Huerta who's going to write the introduction to the book this year, so we're really excited about that. It's, uh, t this year's theme is about um, a moment in your life that transformed you, and so the kids are writing these short pieces, and some of them are writing very long pieces about those things. And, but the idea is to really give students the experience of what it is to publish a book. And so we spend up to six weeks sometimes in the writing process where volunteers come in week after week, two to three times a week, and work with students on, on just that piece. Once that's done, we have students who are really interested in going further with the process uh, who become our editorial board. And in that phase, they will work with professional designers who come in and get their you know, take on how do you like how this is looking, how do we, what do we do with the, the cover, what do we do with the, the chapters, how do we break this all up. They work with copy editors, they learn how to copy edit, they learn all the, the wonderful next stages of, of producing a book. So it's, it's a real chance to sort of see the craft of bookmaking. And, and then at the end, we celebrate the book with a, a nice event at a venue, we have a reading, we have cake, we have signing. We used to put plumes on the pen, we don't do that anymore, <laughs> but we actually have a whole author's but table. But we have cake. We do have cake, <laughs> and we, the idea being that in the end we want kids to really feel proud of their books. And we take our designs very, very seriously. We, we have some very amazing designers who volunteer their times also to help us lay out these books, and, and we want them, and we have these beautiful final products. But yeah, we got to work with Ben this past year, um, my director of education, Marisa Gedney. Um, she headed up the project with Emily Coulson, and the project is always made better when we have an amazing teacher to work with. And ben is one of these amazing teachers who can inspire his students, and it's a lot of work to keep this going, and especially when you also have all your other teaching to do and all the other things that are demanded of you as a teacher, but when we find partners that really know what it takes, and it, it makes all the difference, and Ben was one of those partners. Thank you. So the book, again, it's titled We Are Alive When We Speak for Justice. Again, I teach a history class, and I really enjoy teaching history from the point of view of, of voices that have not necessarily been heard, but that I think need to be heard. And, and even if it's for a small audience or a big audience, I think that's, that's really kind of what you know, sets somebody free. And for a lot of my students, um, well, let me start off with, with the content first. We studied the landmark uh, Westminster versus uh, uh, Westminster case, which was this one of these landmark cases that desegregated schools in California, uh, precursor to Brown versus Board. Our school, Mendez, is actually named after the family, uh, Felicitas y Gonzalo Mendez. So already we have almost this historical relationship with the family. So we spent a good maybe about a month and a half to two months partnering with two professors from Cal State LA. Cal State LA is not too far away, City Terrace. And for about a month and a half, two months, my kids benefited from an amazing set of lesson plans, teaching from, again, that partnership with those professors from Cal State LA. At that point, the 826 tutors came in, and, I mean, it was, it was amazing. It was, it was an army of tutors, just this army of tutors that came in. I want to say the ratio was about two or three to one. And when I presented it to my students, I, I think... If there was something that got really fired up about it, incredibly excited about it. But then, you know, there are those just recalcitrant writers. Again, they're 11th grade kids. And for the most part, in this world of Common Core, where, and again, if, if, if you're hip to the educational language, uh, <laughs> you know, this Common Core is this push to now get kids uh, ready for that college-level reading, which really 
focuses on you know finding an author's claim. Uh, what is the the appropriate word choice within the historical context? I mean, it, it, it's a very prescriptive kind of. I mean, it's, it's great. The kids need to know that kind of stuff. But I think for for students, where you know, here's another primary source, guys. All right, you know, what is the author trying to say? How's he backing up his evidence? You know, writing's kind of become another exercise. So for some of my students, when I brought up this idea that, you know, we're going to write a book, we're going to publish stories, and these are going to be your personal stories, and hopefully they're going to embody the spirit of the case that we've been learning about for the last month and a half. Um, and then you're going to produce something amazing, and it's going to be hard, guys, and we're going to dig deep, and we're going to write not one, not two, but, you know, four, five, six drafts. I think some of them were just kind of taken aback. Again, if we take a look at the demo of the school, it's, it's an inner city school. It's almost 100% Latino. Um, Boyle Heights is a historically low SES community. Uh, if, if anyone's ever seen the movie Waiting for Superman, you know, Roosevelt High School was actually featured on that you know, back in the mid-2000s. So, so that's the kind of place that some of my kids are coming from. So to get these kids fired up about it, there was a lot of connection and, and meaning that had to be made between the tutors. And, and I think you hit it on the head about, about how, you know, you have people, these outsiders, professionals, professional writers, and, and perhaps not even necessarily writers, but, but, but people coming in that are not from the community and, and kids kind of being taken aback. Um, but after, you know, some incredible work, and A26 was just masterful uh, working with them, they started writing. And it was just a collection of free writes. There was a topic. Uh, kids were, were given about six or seven prompts. Uh, and the assignment was just write. Just write. And I think anyone who's a writer knows that that's probably the hardest thing to do, right? Just write. And when you are an 11th grade kid who's reading and writing at a 4th or 5th grade level, that's probably the hardest thing to do. Because you're so self-conscious. And, and the bottom line is that most 15, 16, 17-year-olds that our slow, stubborn, recalcitrant writers do so not because they don't dig it. They're doing it because they've always been told, put a period here. You spell that wrong. You know, it doesn't make sense. Awkward syntax. And I think when you've been told that over and over again, some of these kids are just, you know, yeah. So that was step one. And then, and then approaching that just with an open heart, open mind. So um, I'm trying to speed it up because it's such a long process. But, but, but after weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and, and many drafts and drafts and drafts and drafts and, and, and fact-checking, um, again, close to 60 kids produced uh, these amazing stories. Um, some were long, some were short, some were uh, very personal, some were uh, uh, fiction. We were very fortunate to partner up with industry professionals, people working in, I guess, fields related to the kids, you know, so, so, so immigration lawyers, um, <laughs> you know, Latino community activists, um, including Sylvia Mendes herself, the young girl at the center of the case. After that, the kids produced this amazing book, and it was, the mo- it's... Available at our uh, show, <laughs> 1330. I say that, but we, we actually have the book. That they're using it at UCLA in some courses for teachers to help them understand the schools and the students that they might be teaching in. So they're actually being, Stanford just bought up a, a bunch of these. So wow. we do sell them on our time travel marts, and we do have them here. But they're actually books that are living That's on awesome. and being used in universities to help the next generation of teachers who are going to work in urban settings 
to understand, you know, the thoughts and, and the lives and, and the traumas that a lot of our uh, youth are, are facing. And so that's another powerful element of this is that it's, it doesn't just live in this place. It's really allowing these students to open their stories to the world. And that's the beauty of the project in a lot of ways is that you're a published author. One joke we always say is that some of the volunteers who come in, I say, yeah, you're working with volunteers who've been trying to get their work published for years. <laughs> and you're getting your book published in three months. So mm -hmm. it's a pretty powerful thing for them to, to just feel that, that honor and, and, and that confidence that comes from that. When you see their, their parents and their siblings at the party at the end and, and they're celebrating their book, I mean, that is just the most heartwarming thing you'll, you'll see. So anyway. Can you talk a bit about <coughs> how a teacher finds NaNoWriMo and how they might use it in the classroom and yeah. work with you? Yeah, I was going to say, I just wanted to echo everything that you guys just said, just that as a precursor to that. I think um, the reason it works in the classroom, we, we get all these glowing testimonials and we do surveys and, you know, 90% of the kids will say, you know, NaNoWriMo helped me become passionate about writing or I'm a better writer because of NaNoWriMo. And when I'm asked, like, why that is, I think it really harkens back to what you were saying, Ben, is that I think the way that writing is so often taught is through this, like, grammar and syntax and what you do wrong. And NaNoWriMo is an opportunity for kids to jump in and just write with their passion, to write about a topic that they actually choose. And agency is, you know, that's an amazing entree into doing it. It's just like deciding what I'm passionate about and what I want to write about, and I write about it in the way I want to write it, not worrying about mistakes. And so I think that that's where the learning really happens. Instead of like entering the writing world, having to like overcome all these obstacles, you enter the writing world with your passion, and that's how you learn, and then by doing it. And so we actually formed the Young Writers Program. We just kept hearing about teachers doing it. They would write us. They did NaNoWriMo themselves, and they had such a great experience, they brought it to their classrooms, and they did it in their own way. But they kept asking us for support. And back then, we were like a two-person nonprofit. <laughs> so it was hard to like develop curriculum and workbooks and, and things like that. But we did it. In 2006, we, we launched the Young Writers Program. Um, and, and that was like largely by building a website and by, I have the materials over there, but in, in the course of the last 10 years, you know, we have workbooks for every grade level, elementary school, middle school, high school. They're all free. You can download them on the website, or if you want to buy them, they're like $10 a piece. The curriculum is like really important for us, and especially to be Common, common Core aligned. Um, we, we actually have a tough time getting in schools, you know, because of the standardized tests, because of the, the whole educational environment, you know. So we hear stories a lot of teachers have to fight, you know, have to, have to really advocate to get it into their schools. But then on the other hand, we've heard of once a teacher gets it in, we hear these stories like the kids are talking about their novels on the playground. You know, they're asking to come in after school to write their novels. You know, they're having fun doing it. It's meaningful to them. And I hear, of, I mean, all, all this is anecdotally, but, um, like, there's a school in Petaluma where they had such success that the principal wrote a novel with the kids. The teacher wrote a novel with the kids. And then the whole school did it, you know. Like, so to have a whole school writing a novel together is, like, a, just a magical, creative moment. So that, you know, we work really hard to make that happen more, and that's why we're expanding the program and building a whole new website this year. And so there are a variety of ways, though. You know, we, we, we're basically an organization that set, sets up an infrastructure of support we have a tiny staff of eight people, but we reach, you know, these thousands of teachers largely because we provide them the materials to teach, you know, the way that they can in their schools. And so we do that. We have online. The new website will have a writing platform. 
where teachers will be able to have like virtual classrooms and monitor their kids' progress, and also to gamify writing, to make it fun. So we have like badges that kids earn at certain milestones. It's amazing how hard people work for online badges. <laughs> <laughs> and we provide stickers and things like that for certain milestones. You know, so the kids compete with each other in a friendly way, like who's written the most. You know, like a lot of people say, well, if just writing the most is not quality writing. But just the act of writing and writing with such ambition, you know, teaches you how to, you get quality out of that. And then we have things like they can do word sprints or word count wars, you know, so, so classrooms can actually, like, we could have a classroom in San Francisco doing a word war with a classroom in L.A. and tracking their progress. And, and little, like, horse race, you'll, you'll see some kids' word count go, you know, above, <laughs> above the others, things like that. So, like, yeah, there's a lot of word count tracking tools and fun stuff like that on the site. So your, your question was, though, how do teachers find out about it? Um, well, yeah. I mean, so a piece of, yeah. of this is how can people get involved mm-hmm. with a school, right? Yeah, I think a, a lot of times people are wondering, I want to help. Mm-hmm. I have resources. I have time. How do I connect, right? And I right. think for your program, it's like how does a teacher find out about you and yeah. then bring you and bring NaNoWriMo into the classroom. Yeah, and I, I think one, one thing I left out is that, that we do have a, like a teacher mentor program too, and teachers can connect with other teachers online yes. to swap tips. So we're trying to, you know, we're, we're really in the end a community of writers, you know, and so everything we do spawns out of that community. And so, you know, we want to do as much to support that and help teachers form their own writing community on our sites and in person. Yeah. And for Ben, how did you find out about 826 before and then was it difficult to bring 826 into the classroom? Because, you know, our usual access is not through the principal. It's through a teacher. So I, I was lucky enough to have a friend, um, actually a really good friend of mine, who's involved in 826, and he connected me uh, to the person down here who was at 826, and, and we had a meeting about three years ago, actually, an online meeting. And then, as fate would have it, a couple of years later, she reached out and said, hey, you know, I'm working on these two you know, professors from Cal State LA. Would you be interested in, in, in possibly uh, having a meeting and, and seeing where, where this could possibly go? So, so we met up at a cafe in, in Boyle Heights, and, and we just kind of threw some ideas around. And, and I think everybody was, was on the same page. And, and that was the relationship there. But, but how do you bring it in the classroom? I, I think anything that gets kids to write, you know, you have an open door at most high schools, I think. Anything that gets kids to write. So, uh, so when I pitched this to my principal, he was like, go for it. This, this is great. It, it was a pretty easy process uh, to get in. However, uh, and I'm not sure if this is, will be addressed later, but the, the whole idea of, of bringing in people to classrooms and bringing programs to the classrooms, I think you brought up having classrooms of 40 when you were teaching, and, and having a class of 10 is hard. You know, Having a class of 20 is hard, and, and, and trying to give them that, that one-on-one attention. So I think that was the value in 826. That was the value in there, getting those tutors in there and having those, those really you know, amazing ratios. You know, two, three students to a tutor was just amazing. I mean, it really gave the kids, uh, the, I think, that personalized attention that a lot of them really needed. So, yeah, that was, I mean, that was my introduction. And, and, and it's funny, but I'm not sure if anybody else, you know, and here's an educator, but I think establishing those connections is vital. I mean, you have to establish those connections. And... and in a city like L.A., there's so many nonprofits, and the bigger question is, how do we leverage these relationships with our community? I mean, how do we leverage this? I mean, there's, there's so many good, altruistic, passionate people. I mean, who are passionate about writing, and I think, you know, most people, if they have the time, they would be more than willing to go and spend, you know, give up an hour and a half, two hours of their week to work with cool kids. 
So I think, you know, how do we leverage those relationships with our, with our community and, and with those resources that we have in a city like L.A.? I mean, you know, second largest city and second largest school district in the U.S.? I mean, there should be no reason why every kid shouldn't have a tutor, you know, next to him. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, to go on that, you know, some of the challenges for running an organization like this, I mean, the, the two biggest things that feed our organization are obviously funding and volunteer numbers. And, um, and yeah, what's amazing about HU6 and what's always impressed me about HU6 is that it attracts incredible people, people who really, you know, want to get involved and want to make a difference or want that experience of connecting with young people in, in communities that, in L.A., it's a very different landscape because... You know, kids aren't living necessarily side by side. Like in San Francisco, there's some, some, some of that. But, um, but yeah, the numbers is always the challenge. I mean, we have the demand is very high for our programs. Um, if, you know, we've had to limit our number of schools that we can work with to 15. Um, we have the in-school project. And this is something we've just figured out over the years based on how many kids we can reach, how many volunteers we can recruit. There's an algorithm that we figured out on, on what makes the most sense that we can actually provide the highest quality service that we can provide. So you're limited to how much you can do based on that. I and mean, then there's you know, other resources that have to be put into finding people who can help you recruit more volunteers. And there's the training. And then there's people's realities that they can't always come during the day to a school to help out. So, so there are some challenges. I mean, there's lots of schools that we really want to work with, but getting volunteers there is a lot more of a challenge. This new project that we have in Manual Arts High School in South L.A., it's the oldest high school in Los Angeles. It's undergone a lot of changes, and it's still going under changes. But it's very close to USC. So um, for many years, there was a project that students who were helping the school out, but because it's tough to continue that relationship unless there's somebody in between, a liaison, who can help make that connection work. So we've rebuilt that connection to USC, and we have this pipeline of students that come through now. And it's amazing, because one of the big things we do at the beginning of the year is personal statement work, where we're helping students who wanted to get into their... Cal States or their UCs or whatever schools they want to go to, we help them um, create a personal statement. And what better mentors than to have you know, current college students come in and help you in that process of guiding. And for a lot of these students, that story is that one thing that will get them noticed because they may not have the same competitive grades or extracurricular activities that other students um, in other you know, better off sort of communities might have. And so these stories are where they really shine. But these stories are also um, an opportunity for them to dig deep and to really find that, that they aren't just like everybody else, that they have a very unique experience that, um, that can really change other people's lives or understanding of who they are, but it also changes them and it becomes this process. And so you need adults who can really help build trust and to help the students feel like they have somebody that they can trust to, to, to convey these stories to and then to write them out. But yeah, the idea of sustaining these relationships is challenging because it is, there is a lot of demand, but recruiting, retaining, training volunteers to make sure that, that we can provide the services we need does become a challenge. Um, and it's something we're, we're always trying to work on how to, how to deep. But having schools, and I'll, I'll end with this, but schools you know, and teacher allies who are willing to make it easier for volunteers to come in is always going to make it work. We have to have our volunteers with TB test clearances. We have to make sure that they're fingerprinted. Um, there's a lot that goes into making sure the volunteer is ready also for that classroom experience. So just throwing that out there. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about retention, right? How you keep the relationship. Because I'm thinking for NaNoWriMo, mm -hmm. you have a classroom and it happens that one year. 
does it happen again? And how do you maintain that relationship with the teacher for something that goes beyond the November, yeah. right, to the next to keep that going? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, that's a great question, and it's something we're working much more diligently and focused on. Our program is just wide open. So when I say that like 2,000 teachers did it across the nation last year, those are only the teachers who went to our website and ordered a classroom kit that we shipped to them for free. So we basically know that there's a, there are many more doing it informally. And so, yeah, retention is a key issue for us. Um, and it's interesting because both of our organizations, how we rely on volunteers. You know, it, it, when Joel's, what did you say? You rely on the power of funding and volunteers. Yeah. So, yeah, we're, we're the same, of course. Yeah, and it, it is a lot of work, especially on the relationship level. I mean, I think in the end, I mean, we want to develop better pathways and just develop a website where that community exists, not just in the month of November, but it exists for the, the whole year. Um, I think a lot of people look at us as an event instead of a year-round program, but we're really a year-round program. Like the curriculum that we provide, it doesn't just focus on writing a novel in November. Some teachers start in September, and it guides kids through like how to prepare to write a novel and what they might like to write, and then writing the novel in November, and then it extends through like revision, and also we have a publishing program where a lot of teachers, like their kids, well exit with a final product. We have a sponsor every year who provides a free copy of a book to every student. I think in the end, it's, it's about providing a great experience for the teachers, and they will come back if they have that great experience and if it's meaningful to them and if it's meaningful for their students. So I think we really focus on what we provide them. That's the best way. Since we're, we're national and only have a staff of eight, we can't do the, the sort of hands-on work. Uh, we're based in Berkeley, so we're very engaged in the schools who do it in the Bay Area. We, we do classroom visits, and we have so many great writers who've come out of NaNoWriMo and are very dedicated, and so we're trying to find a way to develop a program where we can place them in schools, you know, so that they can visit a school in L.A. or Washington, D.C. But that's just beginning, so we really have to, there's a lot, of, a lot of logistics to that that we have to figure out, so, yeah. As you look at how you're trying to bring the community into the classroom, right, and nonprofits to work with, what are some of the things, you know, you, like, the wish list of, like, oh, I wish people would know. Great, you can come to me, and if you want to volunteer, you can volunteer, I think there's you know, there's an army of young kids, and I call them kids or mid-20-year-old kids, but coming out of teacher ed programs that are trying to figure out how to survive, and I think especially in your first couple of years, uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's a different landscape, and it's not like your, your master's or credentialing program. I'm not sure if you know this, but I actually started off at Manual Arts High School. Taught right down the street <laughs> on 41st in Vermont. And after reading book, you know, works by Freire and, and Angela Valenzuela on, on care theory, and, and the minute, you know, day one, I was like, wow, that just went out the window. <laughs> you know, it is different. It is just absolutely different. So I, I think what teachers need is, I think, a clear way to find out those allies who exist and that are willing to lend their time. I think that's the biggest thing. I, I keep going back to the ratios. I probably should have said this before, but the two classes that worked on this book project, they were not AP students. Uh, this was not the AP class. And I think that was a good thing, actually, because I think my AP students would have given me what they think I would have wanted to hear. Does that make sense? And I think that's such an AP thing, right? <laughs> you know, he'll like this part. And I'm just, no. This will get me into college. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, it wasn't my honors class either. I mean, you know, these were kids who probably should have been in AP. These were kids who had been held back. These are kids who had probation officers. Uh, these are kids who were in the foster care, in the foster system, 
if, if you ever take a look at a, the book, Madison Ramirez, she's one of our authors. I mean, she has just this heartbreaking story, and it's one of the most powerful stories. And when, when we did the reading, it was amazing. But having, again, that ratio of two tutors to one, I think that was really what made it possible because as, as much as, as I would want, but my, my mind doesn't think that way like I think writers do. I love to write. I, I, Ryan and I, the, the person who connected me to 826, so we, used to, we, we used to write for a music magazine, actually, many moons ago. So I dig it, but I'm not sure how to teach that kind of writing to 11th graders. And if you've ever worked with high school kids, uh, I, I think the motto of every high school kid needs to be the path of least resistance. I mean, that's, that's a motto. I mean, the kids just want to do the least amount of possible to get their points, and they're done. I mean, just call it a day. And if you take a look at the first drafts of what my kids are writing, talk about a, an experience that, that, you, that was very uh, impactful or, or hit you. And you'll have kids say, oh, you know, yeah. once I was walking home on First, on first Street and you know, I got jumped and it sucked, period. And there's, you know, it's time. <laughs> Story complete, you know. Fill in the life. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, working with 826 and I think the writing programs, I mean, it, it, it was to the point of just like, man, writers think so differently. I mean, yeah, I would listen on tutors, and they'd be like, okay, okay, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. When you were walking on First Street, what did you smell? <laughs> so, so all of a sudden, you know, these kids, I mean, by the end, it was, you know, by the end, it was, yeah, the kids were writing stuff like, you know, I was walking down, you know, the rundown streets of first, you know, Boyle Heights, and... And I could smell the smell of sandalwood mixed with corn tortillas coming from, you know, I mean, the, it was just amazing. I think that would not have been possible without that help from people who know how to write. I mean, I think that's really what strengthens these programs. So I, I think those are the needs that we need. And I think to go one step further with NaNoWriMo, I, I want to sign up for one of these kids. I'm telling you right now. But manpower, you know, right now it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a resource that you're sending out to to, mm-hmm. to high schools. You know, A two six LA. You guys are so tied down with funding and, and volunteers. Going forward, the biggest thing now has to be how does that become self sustaining? Right. I mean, that's a question. How does that become self sustaining? You know, I, I have a four year old and and he doesn't know how to read, but he's in the process of you know letters and. and I mean, all the good stuff. You know, he loves when I read to him and we read together. And, and he has this book on planes. And I've become an 826 tutor, you know, because I tell him to tell me the story. And we look at the pictures. And he goes, you know, so Dusty, you know, he's, he's flying. And I'm like, all right, buddy, what's he feeling? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's becoming, you know, so Dusty's, he's, he's so excited because he wants to run the race. And it's funny because now I've taken that and I've become that tutor almost. When my students are writing now, I'm telling them, all right, guys, listen. You know, I, I see what you wrote about your analysis of the explosion of the main. Let's go further now. You know, I mean, I think that's empowered me as a teacher and how I talk about writing. Uh, again, kids are always about the path of least resistance. And, mm-hmm. and whether it's a personnel issue or whether it's funding, I think the programs and, and what the work that you guys are doing with, um, with schools – there's a spillover effect that lasts and keeps going and going and going. This year, we're doing something, again, on a much smaller scale. And we're talking about maybe just, you know, four tutors for an entire class. And eventually, I'd like to get, you know, good enough to be able to do something like this on my own. 
So I think that would be the need, how to leverage that, you know, help and find those resources. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. But there have been some teachers we've worked with who've taken it on as their own project and who've kept some relationships with volunteers. We have one teacher um, at ALC, uh, Andy Molnar, who's been doing a book publishing project year after year uh, on his own. <laughs> we provide some support and resources, but he's figured out how to do this. And with all these online publishing tools as well, it's made the process even easier. Just getting the funding is always the challenge, but once you get that sort of mechanism of getting the students into the <laughs> rhythm of doing these kinds of projects, making it part of your curriculum as well, so you're not deviating, that really can happen. And I've heard, glad to hear that, you know, the, the challenge is keeping those volunteers. And you can do a great deal with four volunteers. You just have to have them outside, maybe, and you send out a few kids at a time to get that one-on-one -on -one attention for 15 minutes, even, each. And we're finding this at our writer's room in manual arts as well, as sending half the class in to get some support for maybe four or five volunteers um, at a time, and then switching it out. It gives the teachers more time to focus also on maybe what they're trying to teach. So those are the challenges, but also the successes that are possible through those kinds of strong collaborations. So collaboration, right, the, the word everyone is using, especially in the nonprofit world. It's like, oh, you all collaborate. Why don't you collaborate? <laughs> but let's talk about that, yeah. right? <laughs> let's just talk about it. To me, probably the thing that's, it's a buzzword, but actually we should be doing it more in the nonprofit community of how to collaborate. And I know mm -hmm. six we've done work with, NaNoWriMo, where our 826 NY New York chapter has actually done with their writing students after school a novel, right? Mm -hmm. You could talk about how you might be able to collaborate, and then how that can, then that collaboration can benefit a school, and how people can jump into that collaboration. So let's start with the first one. How can nonprofits collaborate effectively? That's a big question. It's a big yeah. question. Yeah, you're the first one I called, as I said. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's, it is tough for nonprofits. You know, I mean, Gerald Knight, every time we get together, you know, we, we look for ways to do things together. And with scarce resources, it's really tough for us just to achieve our mission, you know, and create the impact in the world that we want to do. At the same time, though, we know that working together, you know, we can do a lot more. So, I mean, for us, you know, it's, I think it's in part just because we don't do so much hands-on work. It is about getting out the word and building awareness and sort of, like, collaborating in this, um, you know, I, I mean, even our meeting yesterday, we went to this LitNet meeting. Like, a lot of people trivialize writing and especially creative writing, you know, as if it doesn't have any impact in the world. But I think everything that Ben and, and Joel was, were talking about, you know, when you write your story and put it into the world, it transforms you and the world. That's really important. We need more voices in the world. And so I think it's like we share that common mission. We've got to constantly make that case that creativity, you know, has impact. You know, it's, it's not just about science, technology, and engineering and math. I read a statistic that 75% of scientists became scientists because they read science fiction when they were young, you know. Exactly. Science fiction mm -hmm. opened up their minds to imagination, you know, to other worlds. And then now they're exploring those other worlds in a different way, in the lab instead of on the page. But they intersect. They complement each other. But then I think, you know, there is, like, the bigger logistical question, the everyday question. And um, managing a nonprofit, we, we can do 100 things, and they all make sense, and they're all great. You know, so we just have to choose very selectively what makes the most sense, you know, how we're going to, like, focus our resources on, on doing something well. And so, like, yeah, that's why I called Gerald at the beginning, because 826 shares our mission and, and our spirit so closely. So I just always like to think, like, hey, something good is going to happen eventually. We're going to work together in a fantastic way, like today. <laughs> or, like, you know, I think your chapters... Um, we, we each operate by giving other people the, the power to implement it in their local communities in the way that works for them. So I think like there's a way for 
for NaNoWriMo to work in, in different chapters in different ways, whether it's like an after-school program or, or something that they kind of sponsor as a challenge in their chapter. I don't know. There are a lot of different ways to do it. So it's just about, I think, having the discussion and being open to collaboration and not being so much about, like, this is us. We want all this attention for what we do. You know, at some, at some point, you just have to open up and say, no, we're going to work together and it's going to all work out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love just what the digital realm just offers you in that aspect where yeah. you can reach lots of kids in, in, a, in a way that doesn't require too much on the other side, too. But I, you know, I think that for us, collaborations with great projects like yours, but also even the volunteer piece being such a big part for us, I think collaborations with universities have been very strong. A lot of teachers and professors are now assigning volunteering for our organization as part of their curriculum. So um, there's even service learning components where students can be paid to come in and work with our students. Um, and sometimes you'll get volunteers, you know, students who are just coming in to, to do it, but then they can't help but get captivated by these funny, great kids who, who just, you know, find a way to, you know, to make, you know, the students feel guilty if they don't come back the next week or whatever else. I was just talking to a volunteer yesterday who was like, I, I'm embarrassed I wasn't able to come in last week, but, and, and the twins, they're going to they're give me so much crap for not being there. It's like the students really build these relationships with, with the volunteers. But collaborations with universities is key, I think, for our success. You know, we do a lot of collaborations with corporations. A lot of times corporations really want to send volunteers into these projects, and some do, but it's challenging, obviously. You can't send folks during the work week, and that's when we need the most help. Uh, a lot of corporations want to do things on one day sort of things, like come in send and... Send 500 people. Send 500 people in, we're going to paint and finish your place. It's not always what we need. Uh, we try to figure out ways to make it work, but those are kinds of the collaborations that have been working for us, and with other nonprofits as well, figuring out maybe how to, how to put our resources together to make something possible. And the costs of publishing a book, um, there are other organizations that maybe can help on that and those aspects. But I think that the process of writing and what you guys do is fantastic. Just, you know, getting students to just jump in there. I love the word count thing. I remember I used to tell my students uh, when I was teaching, because you know, it was very reluctant writers and, and reluctant to a lot of things, but just to finish a page of writing was a success. And that, you know, to show that you've exercised that muscle to be able to write that much. And then, you know, you're just going to get more and more, you know, you're going to get stronger in that thing. I love how, how you guys do that through, through NaNoWriMo. But I do think that... Um, yeah, finding partnerships and collaborations that, that do make sense, because we all do have our own strategic plans, we have our own goals, we have our own staffs and teams and resources, and just finding those that really make the most sense are, are going to help us the most. I'm going to open up for questions. You first. question is about um, partnerships in online or non-traditional, not classroom partnerships. A lot of online stuff. <laughs> yeah. So are you, are you looking for like specific like teachers and how they work together with other teachers online, or is it more about organizational level kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think online is so powerful just in, in connecting people across, you know, geographies. So, you know, I think a lot of teachers since the beginning of the Internet have worked with different classrooms, you know, whether it's um, doing different blog projects online or, you know, from different perspectives on different subjects. And so I think there's a lot of that that happens in NaNoWriMo in the sense of either students and writers. I mean, when I say we break down the mythology of the solitary writer, it's because they find that community online, and it's amazing how it resonates. And there's amazing power when you find other people who are like you, who are writers, you know. And so 
reaching people where they might not have access to like a physical workshop or space they can go to to get writing instruction. I mean, it's interesting. People are the opening up that door is, is really tough sometimes for a writer to be able to open up the door and do it. And so I think the online environment, um, they can do it with a degree of anonymity. Um, we're, we're all about creating like a safe space. So like for our Young Writers Program, the forums on our site are very active. But we have a forums moderator who looks at literally almost every post, you know. So if there's a kid who's like getting ganged up on, if there's cyberbullying, like we monitor that. It's interesting to us because we're all about encouragement and empowerment. You know, our, our, that's our organizational message. And the, the people who get involved in, in our organization, they, the participants, they embrace that. And so the language that they're putting forth in the forums, they own it almost more than we do. So I think it's, it's largely about that. Like, we provide the infrastructure, we create the conversations or the tone of the conversations, and then, and then the people come together, like, organically and naturally. And I think, like, on the teacher level, that's the same thing. We're creating our website that allows spaces for kids to write, but also for teachers to interact and engage with each other. I hope that answers what you're... <laughs> so, my question is, uh, what's the difference between... I'd say we're very much about putting volunteers face-to-face with kids in a classroom setting or at our space, and that's the key, is just that person-to-person sort of contact. I think Mm -hmm. you you do some of that in in the We do, yeah. We're less, other than, like, beginning this, you know, Writers in the Schools program, which hasn't, you know, when we put an author in a school in the range of the visits, we're we're less hands-on, especially in our classrooms. We really, I mean... Teachers oftentimes don't want volunteers in the classroom. You know, it's easier for them not to have volunteers. And um, so we really just, they're kind of our volunteer. They're our spokesperson, our ambassador, the person carrying out the program. And then, our, I mean, I think the difference is, like, our volunteer part, we, it's, it's interesting because you say volunteers and people think, oh, you know, you just have people walk in the door and they immediately start helping you out, like 500 people to show up one day to, to I don't know, <laughs> yeah, clean your closets or something. But our volunteer program, we vet every single, you have to apply to be a volunteer. We don't just, and we don't accept all applications. You know, we vet them, we check them out thoroughly. And so these thousand volunteers around the world that host writing gatherings, we have a, a person hired to manage them because it's very complicated, you know, to have that many people. Um, and there are so many things that can happen. So I guess our, our, we probably manage, le- but less directly. You know, like that person who manages our thousand volunteers, she's actually in Canada, and those people are all over the place. So it's it's really done virtually for the most part. Yeah. So yeah, and but we do train them. We provide a whole panoply of stuff of support. We have webcasts. We have special forums where they talk to each other. You know, we just provide them as much support as possible. Well, for us, I mean, we have a process. We have a volunteering 101 session where folks who are interested in our organization, they come to that first. You know, to get there, though, you know, we do require or are going to start requiring that you have your background check done first and the TB test as well so that you can be ready. But once you come in, we have a whole handbook that we've developed that has our methodology, the way we want, um, you know, that we believe is best to work with the students. You know, we talk about the Socratic method. We talk about ways that it's not about you doing it for the child. It's about letting the child be who the child is and helping the child sort of find his or her voice confidence. So we do a lot of training around that. We, we do a variety of trainings throughout the year as well to help. Our tutoring program is homework-based, so a lot of writers come in to help with the writing, but then, you know, math 
homework appears and science homework and it's like, you know, that's, it, it can be tragic, but it's, it's, it's a wonderful learning thing. And there's always at least one or two volunteers in the room who know something that we can help each other with. But it's a lot about the training and engaging and, and the process and making sure that throughout the year you offer, we're doing these really powerful trainings now on race, gender, and identity, really talking about real issues that come up. And so that Volunteers also understand where our students are coming from, what their worlds are about, and a lot of the issues that are very relevant and important now. And so we try to have a lot of these powerful things available to all our volunteers. So um, in the processing, though, their technology is also a pretty key element, having a good database. We use a Salesforce database, and it's a good way to just, you know, have a place for volunteers. You can sign up online. You can find a way to track, you know, their hours, track their participation, ways to email them, doing automatic sort of reminders about you signed up for this thing coming up next week. So there's a lot of tools out there now that exist uh, for that sort of stuff. But, uh, The testing, so we it cost a, a volunteer about uh, 20 to $25 to go and have their fingerprints done. It could vary for their medical. We, we take TB tests that are within the last six months, um, and so some folks might have to go back in and do it, and it might cost whatever it costs to go see your doctor. We pay a back-end cost because we have to do a deeper FBI check, and so that we are charged for that. And we do um, offer our volunteers to be reimbursed, but many of them see that as their sort of donation to the organization. Um, we've been very lucky that folks tend to not ask for reimbursal there, but, but it's offered. Yeah. We do something similar. We don't do the TB checks and the background checks and the FBI. We don't have the <laughs> <laughs> it's great because we're not in the schools. You Remember you being podcast. We have volunteers yeah. directly in the schools. You do have to do that. We have an application process, and you can't just show up out of the blue and want to be one of our municipal liaisons. or uh, Well, you can in the libraries, I guess, because the libraries are applying. But um, So the application covers, like, have they participated? You know, what is like? We try to gauge their level of passion, what they know, their capabilities of you know hosting events. It's like a big project to do, like to host a bunch of writing events and actually be capable when people come in the door to to create a warm, encouraging, inviting atmosphere. You know, because a lot of our writers are actually they are very introverted people. You know, like sometimes the joke is that they come out of the garrets in November. You know, like out of the darkness to write, and that's true in a certain sense. You know, you have to have people who are very, very sensitive to a lot of the differences in people and bringing them together to to be to to write together and create together, because that can sometimes be a sort of fraught environment. And so we try to evaluate commitment. There's a, a lot of things that we require that they do, you know, in terms of communicating with their writers. Not only have to locate the spaces to host the writing events, but they have to like be able to write like what we call pep talks to, to motivate people. So we want people who are like as engaged and as deeply committed as possible because they do this in addition to their, their normal lives, of course. So it's a constant process. And then we monitor them. You know, like if they don't write, you know, we have it all online so we can see like if their events have to be on the calendar. And if they haven't sent out the messages, we'll know that and we'll check in with them and we'll try to coach them. And we have like a mentorship program too. So it's, it's all about creating, I think, that infrastructure of support so they can succeed. But it's also like constant monitoring and evaluating and coaching. When somebody's a bad volunteer, we hear about it. And it is a very difficult thing to deal with. You know, it takes a lot of energy to, to manage. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. In, uh, so we have here in LA, we have uh, a staff. We're about 25 paid staff, and it's full time and part time. About 11 full time, uh, the rest part time. We have a partnership actually with AmeriCorps Vista uh, through the federal government that provides us um, really amazing folks who uh, 
are helping us build capacity and send some of those roles have become full-time roles after but they they're paid by the federal government at a poverty rate to you know it's kind of like a peace corps for the united states um so we have some americorps assists as well our volunteer ranks we have thousands of volunteers who help in the project so a staff member may go to a school and at Ben's classroom and that person is the sort of the liaison for the volunteers and we'll bring in up to 10 to 15 different volunteers our funding is in a variety of ways uh, we we received an NEA grant this past year we also get department of cultural affairs here in Los Angeles the county also gives us some support but it's predominantly it's mostly foundations private foundations donors our stores believe it or not our time travel marts uh, bring in some money to help us pay the rent but they're also a place where we recruit like a recruiting area for volunteers as well so that if you put value to how much volunteers you can recruit through those places that that's a also very valuable for us but those are we do events as well we do lots of wacky events throughout we've done these uh um ping pong tournaments for cheaters where we try to bring in some celebrities as well to play ping pong against folks where if you raise enough money you can ask your opponent to use his shoe to play ping pong with you mm-hmm. we've done spelling bee for cheaters so we do fun wacky events that help us raise awareness and money as well we're, we're lucky in some senses. We have a unique funding model in that most of our money comes from the people who participate and just have a good experience and donate. So I, I say we're like the Bernie Sanders campaign. His sweet spot is $27. Ours is 25 So it's really about like thousands of people donating small amounts of money. We don't have a whole lot of major donors. Uh, we're developing a major donor program right now. So about 60% of our money comes from direct donations, 20% from like t-shirt and mug sales, and 20% from corporate sponsorships, more or less. We get a few grants. It's really interesting, the grant world. We don't really fit into a lot of the criteria that the most grants um, offer. We got a small NEA grant this year as well, and I hope that I can eventually uh, hire a development manager and we can be more ambitious in terms of like getting grants and working with foundations. And then, yeah, we do a lot of kooky fundraising events as well. The, <laughs> the kookier, the better. I'm just getting some ideas from Joel. I love the, the shoe and the ping pong. Like, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a constant struggle though, you know, so. We have ventured into those realms. I think it's, uh, it's easier with professors sometimes because they make it part of their curriculum, but it's an area we have to explore. We had really strong volunteer numbers for many years, I think. We were talking about this yeah. last night. But in these last few years, I don't know it's because of the economy, more people are working. <laughs> Actually, the writer's strike was <laughs> yeah, a great time for us. <laughs> more people are working, yeah. yay. But it is an opportunity now where we're, we're going to start to look into more, you know, and, and trying to figure out also just... I think it makes sense to, to find funding sources for those kinds of collaborations. I mean, it's, it's hard, you know, to, especially in this town because you have to travel to places. I mean, you know, if you're in your car or even in public transportation, I mean, these are costs. And so we're trying to figure out ways to make that work, but that is an area we, we are exploring as well. Yeah, we do it less. I mean, it's like all of our programs. It's less hands-on, less formally, but we hear about a lot of different ways that, that NaNoWriMo is hosted on college campuses, whether it's writing centers or, or directly in the classroom. So... Yeah, we, we have a whole program called Come Right In that we started for, for libraries for that purpose, that libraries aren't just archives of books anymore. They're, they're places of creativity and making. And so we fit very well into that. It's easy for librarians to host NaNoWriMo, and they don't have to pay for it. 
So we provide a whole, it's kind of like our Young Writers Program. We provide a whole, you know, um, package of resources for them to host live writing events in, in, in libraries. So it's, it's, again, it's a question of resources. We haven't been able to focus on that program as much as we have our other programs, but we're like currently applying for a Knight Foundation grant. We worked with School Library Journal and Library Journal very closely last year. We did a webcast with them. So we're trying to build the awareness so that the word will spread. We work with the libraries similarly to how we work with our other volunteers, although we don't vet them like any library can naturally do it. And libraries are great, though. They they're just have the infrastructure set up to do it. They, like, get the word out. They get, like, articles in the newspaper. They feature the people who – a lot of them, like, have collections of the books that, have, you know, have been written in the library and published. So, so I love those stories. They're wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, our sister chapter in New York City has a uh, Williamsburg library branch, right? Yeah, and Williamsburg, and Boston has one in Grove Hall. Grove Hall. We haven't done that yet. We've been talking with the Library Foundation about possibly doing that as well um, down the line. But for us, too, so we want to figure out, you know, we want a library but in an area of need, but we also want to make sure we have a volunteer force. So we, we're talking about that. What's great about satellite sites like that is it doesn't cost as much. Like in schools, that's our hope now is to build maybe projects more in schools because we don't have to deal with the rents. We have two major rents that we're paying for our two locations in Echo Park and Mar Vista. It's a big cost, so if we can get closer to the students and get closer to the communities, those are partnerships I, I very, very much welcome to figure out how to make those, those work is, is our next challenge, too. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're talking about the prisons, uh, mental health in prisons. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the prisons get an underserved population. Right. Country music concerts, the yoga teachers, the you know, Tim Robbins actors getting theater. Mm-hmm. And then maybe this is an unfair question, but what made it difficult for Nana Rundle You know, I'm not entirely well-versed in this, but the people we talked to um, who had, were involved in prison programs, that it's, it's, it's just they're very tightly run. It's, it's very hard to reach them and influence the programs they have. And so it would have just taken us a lot of resources that we don't have to do it. So we really do rely on existing teachers to be the advocates for it, and we hear wonderful things like when, when prisoners, I mean, it's perfect for them. They for all the reasons they get to express themselves in an unfettered, passionate way. It's really therapeutic. Um, they have amazing stories to tell. But, yeah, it's just really a matter of resources. Like when I said there'd have to be a whole new nonprofit for this or a whole <laughs> new big program that we'd have to fund, that's what it would take to do it. Um, and a lot about it, it is like a similar challenge with getting into school districts. You know, We get a lot of individual teachers who bring NaNoWriMo into the classroom, but we haven't worked at the district level. And so, and, and so that takes a lot of, like, you know, you have to build those relationships. It's hard to get into the door, you know, and, and to, to prove your worth, you know. So, yeah. Great. I want to thank the three of you. Grant. Thank ben, you. All right. Joel. <laughs> all of you for coming. If you'd like to ask more questions or talk to any of us, our, our booth is at 1330. And thanks for coming. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.